Thank you very much for choosing the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Brendan. And I'm Simon. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, So we're talking today about the Season 24 collection Blu-ray box set. So how did you guys first encounter this season? Did you, uh, Brendan, did you see it on broadcast or was it later on? I saw it on broadcast. So I think I've told this story on um, previous uh, podcasts I've I've done. Actually, basically every previous podcast I've done. But um, uh, uh, as a kid, I had a broken arm. Uh, and the way I was kept still was my dad's off-air recordings of Doctor Who. And uh, around the time this happened, after I got into all the off-air recordings, season 24 was the next season up. So it was the first season I saw live. I believe I missed Delta and the Bannermen Part 2 because it wasn't on the original tape uh, the original tape off air, and I don't think I saw it until the DVD came out. Um, is how is how that kind of works. But I do wonder if I saw it and there was just an accident with the recording, like the tape got rewound and we taped over it. Because I always understood the story, um, so I think that may be what happened there. Uh, yes, and uh, yeah, so that's how I first watched it, totally on broadcast with me pressing the buttons on the VCR. And it was one of those old silver top loaders. I'm, I'm miming the action listener because this is a, this is a podcast. Um, but yeah, so listener, if you imagine a silver box and instead of a slot in the front for the tape, there's a hatch in the top that pops up um, uh, like, uh, like the top of a mechanoid in Doctor Who. And you you slide the tape in there. There's a little cradle, and you press it down. And then the buttons down the bottom, instead of being like um, t- a touchpad or a little sort of nub button, there were these giant plastic toggles. And I'm pretty sure for record, you had to press record and play at the same time. <laughs> That's how old school we're going. Um, and yeah, that was after I'd learned to put uh, videotapes in it instead of my sister's calculator, um, which I apparently did as a small child. So yeah, that's how I first saw this. How about you, Simon? Um, well, this is the season that made me a fan. I'd seen some of my earliest memories full stop are uh, Peter Davison, uh, Five Doctors, The Dark Tower, and um, the Black Rock um, on the TARDIS walls, which scared me stupid for some reason. Um, and then I'd watched a couple of Colin Bakers there. I watched the whole of the Vervoids story. Um, but it wasn't until Time in the Rani, and I remember watching the whole of that um, and thinking, wow, this is amazing. And I would I would have been, what year was it? Eight, seven, I would have been nine Um coming on for 10 when it was broadcast and it was just the biggest campest loudest thing but with science fiction and real death in it and danger and these actors who are vaguely recognized from other places and yeah it's what made me a fan season 24 and for years everybody said that it was absolutely appalling rubbish 30 odd years later who's right now (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I must be about a year or so younger than you then, Simon. I, I started watching this the next season, so I, I, I came in with season 25. So this this was all a mystery to me for ages. Um, I read the novelization of Dragonfire really early on. Um, I think it's either the second Target book that I read or the second one that I bought because I remember buying that and the War Machines together because they were consecutive Target library book releases. Um, but at that stage, I had no idea that you know I was reading a first Doctor, then a seventh Doctor. I was probably picturing everything as Sylvester McCoy um, at that stage. Um, so I, I had an idea, obviously, of, of Ace joining and how it all happened. But yes, you know, it was it was age. It would be the, the VHSs before I get to to see it for myself. Um, so, what are your favourite stories from from season twenty four? Brendan? Um, I think my favourite is Time and the Rani. I don't think it's necessarily the best one, but it is my my favourite. Um, and anyone who follows me on Twitter has probably seen the photo of me dressed as Bonnie Langford uh, 874 times. Um, but, yeah, it's it's funny. You look at the, you look at the, ma- the making of where sort of Andrew Cartmel and Sylvester McCoy talk, and even Pip and Joan Baker talk about this is not what we envisaged in different ways. But it feels so confident that we are going in a new direction. We are blasting off the cobwebs. Um, we are no longer navel-gazing. We are no longer, sort of no longer do you have to have seen six stories before this one to understand what's going on, even though it does have a returning villain. Um, and the uh, the other side of it is, and I don't think I appreciate this as a child, but I can appreciate it as an adult, there is a strong moral core to this story and all the heroic characters are pulling in the same direction. Uh, it does have its excesses, but it has its excesses because people are experimenting and trying new things. And for some of those things going, okay, that doesn't work. We're not going to do that now. But still, it's kind of funny. You know, Doctor Who was at risk at this point and the production team knew it. But they kind of went, instead of going, okay, we're at risk. We're going to play it really safe. They went, we're, we're at risk. We have nothing to lose now because we we've been cancelled two years ago, right? We know what that feels like. So if we're gonna be pilloried, let's have fun. And I really respect that. Yeah, mine favourite is Dragonfire, and it still doesn't get the love it deserves. Everybody says, oh, Dragonfire, isn't it awful on Twitter? No, it's brilliant. You're all wrong. (laughs) Um, When I watched it as a kid, it was an ice planet. Uh, The biomechanoid was absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, Kane has the best death, um, and that includes the new series, or the modern series. It's not hardly new anymore. Um, (laughs) Ace comes on board, for goodness sake. Um, it has glitz returning. Um, Brendan's right in that there's there seems quite a few elements returning to this, but it's it's really it's in really subtle ways. You know, when it does bring back things, it doesn't trumpet them um, like previous series do do or did. Um, it's it's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's glitz. 
oh yeah, it's the Rami. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Dragonfire is absolutely brilliant because to me, you know, to nine-year-old me, that was a nice planet. And why wouldn't you put a, a shopping centre on top on a nice planet? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> so, yeah. What about you, Matt? Yeah, it's in, it's interesting because we've all got uh, different favourites then. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting sort of prism to look at this through. I think because for me, season 25 and season 26 are, are perfect. So the, for me, the story that it, it is closest to that is the Paradise Towers. Um, I think this season, when I, when I finally got to see it, you can see how it's just almost there. For, for what for me is the is the, the sort of gold standard of Doctor Who, which is the next two seasons, um, and I think a lot of the behind the scenes stuff on this set, you get the sense, especially Andrew Cartmore, he was just there all the time. He was there in the gallery, he was there on location, and he's looking at ways to to steer steer it the way he wants it to go and everything. And yeah, I think I think Paradise Towers is uh, is my favourite of these. Um, and you can see even, you know, probably not the script editor's job, but but visually he's seeing where things fall down and fail. And I don't think the McCoy ever fully gets over um, the problems of, you know, like in Dragonfire when Kane talks about the the ice sculpture, about how it's just an incredible likeness and stuff like that. And it and it looks like one of the Trini and Susanna droids from, um, from the Eccleston finale. Um, <laughs> You know, even even by um, sort of battlefield, they're, they're still um, you know kind of walking into the ship under the lake and saying it's like being in a living thing when they're on a, a raw iron staircase with Christmas lights on it and things. Um, you know, it's never quite get to the point where they can alter the dialogue to actually fit what's actually happening, <laughs> and rather than what was written and envisaged in the first place. Um, but yeah, you can you can see as the, even as the season goes on, it's um, it, it's kind of getting there. Yeah, whereas I'm looking at it retrospectively and thinking, oh, why why can't it just be a bit better and be more like season 25 and 26? But but for you guys, it's your introduction to it, and it's like, no, this is great. <laughs> it, it, Andrew Cartmel's influence was, um, uh, you know, like in the in the battle scene that opens Delta from the Bannermen. And it's totally comic book, totally wide ranging sci fi. If it was all set in that quarry, in that war, I mean, it looked totally believable. It was great. You've got little green men fighting men in fascist uniforms with laser guns and someone trying to get away. It's brilliant. Sounds yeah. Like great. Yeah. Um, the, the behind the sofas on this set, it's. It's it's quite amazing because of course Janet's on them, and yeah. you know we all we all know that Janet is not afraid to say, "Well, that looks crap." Um, I tried to do a Janet voice, and then I realised I'm Australian. I don't have to do I don't have to do a Janet voice. Um, but even Janet, at one point with time and the Rani, says, "Okay, this is a quarry, yet it does feel alien." She's like, why did our quarries never feel like this? You know, <laughs> um, and yeah, there is something about the way it is shot that, and with Delta and the Batman, because I believe Delta and the Batman is the same quarry as Time and the Rani. It does feel um, alien, and I think a big part of it is um, Simon. You're right. They are going, okay, how can we visually? 
add to this. And yeah, it's just it just seems to be done with filters and with a little bit of okay, what we today would call a little bit of post-processing in a computer program, but what back then probably took several hours <laughs> to get right, you know, with the pink sky and then the very deep blue sky. Um yeah, it's it's just extraordinary how they how they settle on we're gonna and it's probably a budgetary thing of okay, we know that we can't afford sort of even the sets we had in season eighteen and nineteen ten years ago, so we are going to hyper stylize what's happening here. Um, but even with that being said, I think people make fun of the sets in Time and the Rani, but I think the lab set is absolutely amazing, and. After years of people in the 80s, well, I don't know if they were saying it at the time, but, you know, people now talk about the, the Fifth Doctor's era and it's like, turn the lights down. In Paradise Towers, you have these pools of light and pools of darkness and the dirty, distressed walls that actually look dirty. They don't just look like pristine studio flats, like in, in um, say, say Time Lash. Uh, yeah, there is such an effort towards visual style here that will continue over the next three years. And I know, I know, I know what you're saying, Mark, about you know things like the battlefield staircase and whatnot. But say that ice sculpture in Dragonfire. As a kid, yeah, um, I totally looked at that because as a kid, I didn't know, I didn't know what what you could do with ice sculptures, and you can actually make them look photorealistic. Um, and I just went, okay, no, that's that's a sculpture. Fine. And that's what the woman looked like. Fine. Uh, it's kind of like I look at it, I do look at it now and I think, um, no, if I look back at the leisure hive, you have much more realistic faces that you've managed to make out of plastic. So I don't know quite why we have that. Um, and But as, as you also say, Mark, it's interesting how they don't necessarily adapt the script when they encounter a problem like that. And on the one hand, I kind of go, they're saying to the audience, yeah, we know, just come with us on this, please. Just don't, you know. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, Kane kills the sculptor anyway. So it could have been, what have you done to her? But but again, it's kind of like, I think... I have read some of the fan press at the time and it's almost like they fall over, some of them fall over themselves, ignoring the good aspects to criticize something minor. You know what I mean? Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm with you, Simon. I totally believe that was an ice planet as a kid and even rewatching it just the other, just last week is kind of like, no, this looks, this looks really good. And yeah, it's polystyrene snow, but you know what? So's ribos. So's every so's the seeds of doom. Every time snow appears in Doctor Who, it's polystyrene or it's foam. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Planet of the Ood, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the way when Kane um, appears on Twenty Four Carat with uh, which is the sort of Mel's version of Dragon's Den. His his pitch is the is the sculptures, and it's a very basic 
polystyrene uh, featureless face. Yes. Um, but, uh, that's, that's a nice gag on that. But I know what you mean. The thing for me like that is with survival. Um, you know the, the animatronic kitlings? Mm-hmm. Um, I, in no way as a kid... <laughs> you know, recognize that that was not a real cat, and it was only yep. watching it when it came out on VHS. That I thought, "There's no way did it look that unrealistic when I was a kid." You do, you do, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Except the reality that's presented to you, definitely, yeah. And also, it's an alien cat. Yeah, there's no, there's, there's no reason it can't have a big bulbous head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's Mike Tucker has said later on if if. If even we had made that a year later, the head would have been the head would have been smaller and the movement more natural. He's just like it was just unfortunate that we were like, yeah, we've did we've done this with a dog. We can do it with a cat. Hold on, cats are really small. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing; it's ambition. They're they're being ambitious, and it's like, yeah, we can totally do this. Yeah, we can hang Kate Omara upside down. It'll be fine. And it's like it's not quite fine, but it's. Almost there, and it's good enough. <laughs> Doctor Who has never knowingly let money or resources or time stand in the way of ambition, and that's why I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I recently did um, Time Flight on Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, and one of my big points is this: this story is trying to do all the things with no money. They didn't suddenly go, oh, we've run out of money, so therefore we cannot make the story. It's, we've run out of money, and we're going to give it a red-hot go. <laughs> yeah, and they're still doing that, really, aren't they? I mean, look at the difference between Doctor Who and Game of Thrones, for example. Doctor Who, <laughs> like, the, what, sort of, like the whole season, and there will be people on the internet correcting me. Please send in your tweets. I'm really looking forward to reading them. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it's like the whole season of Doctor Who is like the equivalent of one episode of Game of Thrones or something. It's yeah. vastly small to such an extent where they've got smaller casts now, and you know, yeah. and still doesn't stop it being awesome. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, in the most recent Doctor Who magazine, at time of recording. Uh, Chris Chibnall talks about how Doctor Who's being made with one-tenth of the budget of Netflix's biggest shows. And mm. people on social media have criticised him for saying that. But it's kind of like, well, no, it's true. And the the other thing he's been heavily criticised for in that in that is he talks about how Doctor Who is a really valued property by the BBC and they put a lot of they put a lot of money into it and that shows their love for it. And people are like, oh, you're removing the magic. He's like, uh, no. Like the television landscape now is about how profitable TV shows are, and guess what? It always was. It's just, he's just saying the quiet bit out loud, actually. Um, and I'm sure, like for God's sake, Stephen Moffat came out to do a publicity tour in Australia for Series Eight or Series Nine. Actually, I think publicity tour in Series Eight, convention in Series Nine, and you know you can't tell me that's not about the profitability of the show. And mm. it's part, look part of the reason we got Season Twenty Four is that the BBC, after going, oh yeah, we'll cancel it after Tom Baker. Someone tapped Michael Grade on the shoulder and said, actually, do you know how much money this makes us, dude? What are you doing? Um, so. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Um, over on FTE, Nathan has Nathan sort of says Doctor Who gets bad when you're making Doctor Who for the sake of making Doctor Who. 
And it's kind of like some of the 80s does fall into that, but absolutely not this. And it comes back to what you were saying earlier, Simon. It's Andrew Cartmel. Andrew Cartmel comes in. JNT literally doesn't want to be here at this point. You know, he was meant to quit. They're like, if you fire Colin Baker, we will let you move on and produce drama or soap opera. And he's like, yeah, great. And then after he fired Colin Baker, they're like, oh, it's too close to the next season. Can you, can you, can you find a new doctor? Um, and I think for that reason, he still cared about making the show, but he kind of went, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to produce this. I'm not going to have as much creative input. And, you know, I'm sure you've got Eric Saywood off to the, off to the side somewhere. And if he found that out, he'd be, that's what I've been saying. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of like Andrew Cartmill comes in and says, I want to bring down the government. And JNT's like, okay, you go off and have fun. Um, and Cartmill does talk about once or twice JNT made story suggestions. Uh, but by that point, because he was only making a few, I think Cartmill says every story suggestion he's made um, either turned it to the better or when I said, no, we're not doing that because X, he backed off. Um, yeah, and for for poor Eric, who, you know, I'm not in love with his vision of Doctor Who, it's kind of, it's kind of like I kind of wish that hands-off approach had come sooner because um, you have to wonder how many of Eric's failings as a script editor came from the fact that he was fighting battles he shouldn't have had to fight. Yeah, it's a pace of energies, really, wasn't it? It was, mm. you know, it's the the Black Archive book of the Ultimate Foe is incredible, um, and it details all that. And I read uh, Scripps Doctor, which almost it, I know it's not a sequel, but because it, it's what happened next, mm. um, it feels like a sequel. There's this thing about with Eric Saywood. Um, Locking the drawer in the black archive is death drawer and snapping the key off, and then in scripts, Doctor by Andrew Cartmel about his time as script editor, he talks about opening the drawer and what he finds in it. So there's like a lovely bit of continuity in that. Um, but also, he said that he talked to the head of drama, and the head of drama at the BBC said, um, "Who is Doctor Who for?" And he said, "Oh, something like, oh, it's for adults, it's for family, it's for everyone." And he said, and the head of drama said, no, it's a kid's show. And then afterwards, he puts, he's, I still think he was wrong. <laughs> mm. So mm. he got this new, brand new vision, you know, and he's he's you're completely right, completely different from Eric Saywood. Um, you know, you, you watch Ultimate Foe and then you watch episode one at a time with the Rani back to back. It could be a completely different series. They just went, bing, ricocheted yep. off. And it feels like with Andrew Cartmel, he just kind of realized how to handle JNT. So instead of having these big battles with him, um, I know this, this is later on than we're talking about, you know, when JNT says, no, you can't have uh, vampires in the Curse of Fenric, he said, fine. And he just changed the names to Hemovores. And when they said, said you can't have Nazis in Silver Nemesis, he just changed it all to paramilitaries. So it wasn't like he didn't fight it, he just found a way around it. And it's obviously a much more harmonious way of working, and it doesn't compromise. Uh, the actual, uh, you know, the uh, the story and the writer's vision, does it? No, no. The, the documentary on here, Here's to the Future, um, you kind of, it, it makes you realize, like we're saying, you know, how close it was to them needing to start making series 24, season 24, so they couldn't let JNT leave or wouldn't let him leave. That it's sort of like an oral history sort of thing that that documentary of the, of that time 
and really makes you realize how amazing it is that anything kind of got to screen, let alone of the quality that it is. Uh, you know, given that the script edit came in with, with virtually no time, there was no scripts commissioned, there was no doctor. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly phenomenal that they pulled it all together at all. And, and do you think about that documentary, um, JNT Secretary? I don't feel like I've seen um, contributions from her or other. I may not be misremembering, but she seems like this goldmine of of, uh, of information anecdotes now. And she's in the most recent doc, no, not the most recent documentary magazine, but the one with the Dragonfire cover. Katie's um, done, is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't feel like I've heard her voice before in, in these sort of reminiscences. So, yeah, fascinating to, to get her perspective on it. If you get a hold of a copy of Scripps Doctor, she's in that quite a lot. And, like, her role in The Office, and it's, like, a really good insight from Andrew Cartmel's perspective of what the office was like and it seems all right you know but a few spats and stuff and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like the the usual office politics going on when you throw a bunch of humans into a high pressure environment um but yeah she comes across as really quite cool I thought I quite liked it yeah 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 um it, it it's very we're, I, I work in TV production and um, that that role of production secretary still exists but it has it has um, a different title now it's um it's it's sort of sort of sort of an associate producer role um, and the funny thing is in in the years I've worked in it you have two kinds of people in that role and they're either totally unflappable it's like anything you throw at them, it's kind of like, oh, no, no, we can fix that. It's fine. Or they are totally domineering and and want to control every minute thing. Um, and I've, I've, wor- I've worked with both kinds. And you can, as you can imagine, the one you have the most fun with and the most trust in is the one who is totally unflappable. Um, but it also means if they ever get cross, you know that things are bad. <laughs> um, Micromanagement never works. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they will very quickly whip the problem into shape, whether that problem is coming from up the chain or down the chain. So I, I like to imagine that possibly with spats with JNT, it was Kate Eastall going, actually, John, really, really? <laughs> Really, um, and uh, I, I, w- I won't say the show I'm working on at the moment, but I will say that um, uh, the associate producer I'm working directly with currently on the show is very much in the unflappable mould. And <laughs> at times, um, we've been we've been talking about jobs I have to do, and I've been the one who's gone off in a bit of a tears, and she'll just be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Anyway, so the role is. <laughs> And that is invaluable. That is an invaluable skill to have when um, one one of your, in this case, editors is being a bit precious to to kind of, to kind of not as you say with Andrew Cutbell, not argue but deflect. You know, Andrew Cutbell deflected it. He's like, okay, mm-hmm. heave of um, Yeah, I, th- I think at some point a- a- Andrew Cutbell says, you know that. And I could be wrong on this, but I think he says the biggest argument he had with JNT was about the husks in Ghostlight. And he's like, they don't make any sense, but JNT wanted a monster. <laughs> so I tried to make them make sense. I'm sorry. 
And again, you compare and contrast to Eric Saitwood, who has said multiple times on the DVDs, well, this scene worked when it left my desk. And it's like, well, I don't... Uh. <laughs> no, no, it's the children who are wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing is with Andrew Carmel, it's like you say, like, and as a consequence, the whole McCoy universe... It's it's got a very comic book feel to it because that's mm. why his background, his interests are, are, and you know it's, and I think that's what attracted me to what's made me a fan with Time and the Rani from the beginning because when I think of Time and the Rani, it's in colours rather than what happens. Yes, it's in deep reds and pinks and greens and yellows, and it suddenly you got this riot of primary colours. And, you know, whereas Colin Baker's season, it was like, he's kind of felt stodgy. And I could Mm. kind of see where the critics in the BBC were coming from because it was just becoming uh, 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 more stodgier as time went on. But then all of a sudden, you know, like you get get time in the Rani over and done with. And then from about roughly Paradise Towers onwards, and it's like suddenly light and breezy. Mm. And it, it's colourful and it's got like kind of this brand new palette. And yeah, that, that's his doing. It's, um, you can really see the influences in there. Yeah, yeah. And we've, uh, we've got two new directors this season um, and, and Chris Clough, who did the last six episodes of last season. And um, this Blu-ray set has like over a day's worth of raw footage. Like, you could probably re-edit the episodes yourself if you wanted to. Um, And obviously I haven't watched all of it. Um, But... (laughs) Um, But what... Simon raised a hand, dear listener. Um, One one of the bits that has really struck me from the bits I've watched is... um, Nicholas Mallet directing um, the bubble plate footage in the quarry uh, for Time and the Rani. And he's sort of briefing the camera op beforehand saying, okay, so you're going to have to linger on that first shot for a bit and then sort of follow where I'm looking for the explosions. And it's just, it's just, it's a, for Doctor Who, that's quite a complex kind of camera move. And especially when you compare it to trial, which, yeah, the camera work could be quite stodgy there. They kind of went, um, they kind of went, okay, yeah, we've done this motion control shot for episode one. <laughs> now just point the camera and shoot. Um, you know, and you do have, you do have some really interesting camera work there, like, like um, the Hyperion three tracking shot into the lounge, uh, you know, I'm not saying trials camera work is bad, but then you then you get uh, Nicholas Mallet going. Okay, yep, we're going to add it in visual effects later. It's going to be lovely. Okay, now follow where I look. Follow where I look, and bang, bang. Yep, down, 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 down. Bang. Okay, great. And it's just he does that with such quiet confidence. That direction, as I as I'm as I'm watching it um, on the behind the scenes footage. 
he's just like, yep, this is what we're doing. It's uh, it's a bit complex, but let's get it right. Okay, three, two, one, let's go. And Sylv elsewhere on the box set talks about how he thinks JNT shielded him and Bonnie a lot from a, from a lot of the criticism and a lot of the politics, so they could just get on with it and have fun. Um. And, you know, of course, JNT is not without his controversies and there is no excuse for some of his behaviour, both on and off the set. But I think that attempt to shield the actors, possibly, you know, possibly informed by the fact that he had to fire Colin and Mm. and that he adored Colin. um, Yeah, I think that that is the right decision for the show. You can't have your actors worried about the criticism. Uh, because it's because it's going to leach into their performance, and you know, um, I, I've heard through through reliable information that the current production team do not pay attention themselves to social media, and I think that's absolutely the right thing to do because, of course, Stephen Moffat had social media and and and, and got off it because of the criticism he faced. And look, there are moments. They're not whole, not moments. There are whole movements in the Moffat era that I don't appreciate, but I can I can see the craft behind them. And it's kind of like I said earlier, Eric Sayward's vision of Doctor Who is not my favourite, but I can look at it and appreciate it artistically for what he is attempting to do. And I've said this before, and I stand by it. I wish someone had commissioned a new science fiction series about space mercenaries from Eric Sayward, because I think that's the story he really wanted to tell. And I think he could have done it beautifully. And there was definitely a window for that after Blake seven finished. Um, Whereas Andrew Cartmel, I know he's done other things, but Andrew Cartmel doesn't just come in going, what's the show I want to make. He comes in saying, what's the doctor who I want to make. Yeah, yeah, and it really, really absolutely shows, doesn't it? You know, it's like it brings his influences with him, but he doesn't try to turn it into what he really wants, you know, into Mm. something else. Like, you know, and that's the difference, really, isn't it? It's Doctor's to me has always been variations on the theme. It's the same story. Like, Mm. I went to this talk given by Philip Hinchcliffe um, a few years back, and he said, There are only six Doctor Who stories. There are only six, and they are repeated and repeated and repeated. But you wouldn't know it because we dress it up. They dress it up differently, and mm. he's kind of right. You know, yeah. it's like pyramids of Mars and the demons are the same story. You've yes. got an alien, an ancient alien who we think humans have always thought was a god, and you've mm-hmm. got a heat barrier where everyone's trapped inside, <laughs> and it's up to the doctor to to solve it all before the world blows up. Yeah, it's the same story, and he's absolutely right. It's just variations on the same theme, like uh, like different orchestras doing the same song over mm. and over and over again. And you know, we lap it up. You know, yeah. And and you know, even even here, you've got the the favorite Hinchcliffe trope of the villain who was not sufficiently executed enough. <laughs> Twice, you've got Croagnon and you've got Kane. <laughs> <laughs> if the, only that happened in real life, eh? you know, like uh, Anne Boleyn coming back and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Boleyn said, "We meet again, Henry." <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Just go back to what you were saying, Brendan, about the uh, the protecting uh, of the actors. Completely agree. Up until that clip, um, that it, it was, it, I'm sure it was called Open Air, I think. Mm-hmm. That awful woman. Um, just, I don't know how Sylvester and Bonnie didn't just get up and walk away. Just sheer professionalism, obviously. Um, she's sitting there saying, well, I've never liked Doctor Who. <laughs> I think it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody else hates it, and they hate you, and they hate your stories. Just terrible to put uh, to put actors through that. That was just it was so uncomfortable to watch, and and just yeah, your heart really went out to them. I thought, I thought but who's there thirty years later getting a special Blu-ray box set? Not that uh, woman. Not mm. that woman. She's she's forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Who was she? To go back to what you said, you, you've you've watched all. The, the raw footage, did you say? that Because there's like seven or eight hours for each story. Yeah. All of it. And I loved every moment. I didn't fast forward. Admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was seeing things like the ironing or yeah. changing my bed sheets or, um, or drawing or whatever. And But there were certain points and it was absolutely fascinating because you could tell when things were fraught on a given day because people get sucking up the like with each other a bit snappy. Um and then there's some some days where Sylvester can't stop corpsing and it's yep. absolutely hilarious, especially with <laughs> Richard Briars and Clive Merrison. And um and there was there's one particular shot in sequence that they were doing in the, in uh, Paradise Towers and for they did about fifteen takes in a row and only on the last take did Bonnie Langford get the, this really complicated gobble wrong. <laughs> she she said it perfectly, absolutely every time, and, and she kept saying, and then she goes, "What is that thing anyway?" At the end of it, all <laughs> <laughs> these wonderful things, and but you also see um, lovely close-ups of props and things um, that you don't normally see. You know, like there's a gadget they're looking for the doctor. And you see it up close because an actor's fiddling with it right in front of the camera. Mm. And it's absolutely fascinating that all this stuff still exists after all this time. Yeah. Um, but this is this felt like it was made for me because I would have I, I would have watched it when I was nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Because yes. I, I would have lapped it up because I, you know, it's like being in in the studio. It's fantastic. Mm. And you know you can see that like one or two actors like there's one um, is it the runner who goes on with the book with the microphone talking to the gallery, uh, or is it the, the floor manager? Floor maybe? manager, yeah, 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 the floor manager. And you can and you can see the different styles different floor managers have. And you know there's one that you know like who turns his back and a couple of the actors just give each other a look. <laughs> you know, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's like watching a soap opera. <laughs> I, I haven't watched them all either, but I think I don't think I've ever seen anything that gives you a sense as much of of how exhausting that you know being an actor is, and and uh, you know having to maintain a performance by like say doing fifteen, sixteen takes, and each one of them having to be uh, you know kind of really fresh and original seeming. Um, I think you know, you know, you kind of abstractly know that it must be like that, but actually seeing it like that, you think, God, yeah, that must just you must be exhausted at the end of the day. The scary thing is, is that they do 
Well, they do variations, you know, because you're an actor and you want to keep it fresh in your head. So mm-hmm. they say a certain line in a different way with different intonations, different emphases and so on. Um, but the scary thing is, is that they'll they, they'll do a take. Uh, they'll do a take and they'll say it in a particular way and, and I'll know that's the one they used. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Is, I don't know whether that, that probably says a huge amount about me. And it's just like, I oh, know that's the one they use. And it's mixed yep. half with the next one. And, you know, yep. that's that, that, that's scary. <laughs> um, two, two, two of the bits that have really stuck with me of that behind the scenes footage that I have watched. Um, for, firstly is uh, Karen Clegg and Bonnie Langford and Richard Gauntlet all being put on a green turntable um, to do the bubble scenes and poor Richard Gauntlet not being able to see and falling off. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also hello, Richard Gauntlet. Cause he takes off his mask at one point and yeah, hello. Um, yes. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But the, uh, the, the other bit was uh, the opening scene of the TARDIS from Paradise Towers, watching that, uh, because I particularly wanted to have a look at that um, to see if I could turn uh, Mel looking at the screen into a meme template. Um, and you can, I just haven't. Uh, but Sylvester, when he's working at the TARDIS console, at one point... Um, the, the camera shooting Bonnie is right next to him. So he has to wait for the camera to move back when it cuts to his shot. And there's there's something to the effect of as he's moving around the console, he actually stops at one point and says, I pressed different buttons that time. Let me do it again with the right buttons. And it's like, oh, my God. Like he would have no idea that Hartnell had allegedly decided these controls are for this. But he's already doing the same thing of, well, no, I know I need to do the same thing each time. I, you know, I know I am, I am piloting this thing. And then what I noticed that I never noticed in the episode is the doctor points at something and Mel starts doing it. And then there's a deleted scene from Delta and the Bannerman where she's helping to pilot the TARDIS. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, um, I don't think actually, no, I tell, I tell a lie. It's like, Leela had done that before as well, but the second Leela does it, the ship goes wrong. <laughs> um, you know, not many companions get to do that without, okay, it's that one switch, Jamie, and don't touch anything else for God's sake. Um, but it's just done so casually here. It's not remar- It's not remarked upon. And I don't think I've ever heard the actors talk about it. And maybe... It's a. Um, I've only seen two behind the sofa so far. Maybe it's in one of the other behind the sofas where where Bonnie says, "Well, no, someone said you're a computer programmer, so you're allowed to touch the TARDIS." But in her character brief, JNT has written, "Anytime she touches the TARDIS, it's disaster." <laughs> and given that, according to according to Chris Bidney, um, we've now discovered whenever JNT said the Doctor could be a woman, he's like, "Oh God, no! We'd have to change it to Nurse Who. You can't do that, Chris," <laughs> says JNT. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about a year ago in, in Dwib, um, Bidmead revealed that after JNT said that, he took him seriously. And and um, Bidmead's like, would you consider Helen Mirren, who, by the way, was my girlfriend in the 60s? Have I mentioned? Um, <laughs> I'm sure he mentioned that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you would. You would. 
Uh, one of the one of the brilliant things that I spotted on um, the behind the scenes footage was that the book uh, I think it's the Doctor's Dilemma that is read that the Doctor's reading in Dragonfire he had in his pocket in Paradise Towers. <laughs> How cool is that? Because yeah. at one point he goes they go on about pockets and he goes you know the typical Sylvester fashion oh I've got this and he puts it back in and it's fleeting. Mm-hmm. You never saw it on screen. But he had that all the time in his pocket. Mm. How marvellous is he? Yeah. <laughs> and then later in um in Dragon uh, not Dragon, sorry. And then later in Remembrance of the Daleks, I think he's reading Doctor in the House. Yeah, he, he's yeah. in 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 um in the boarding house he picks up another book with Doctor in the title. Yeah, he told, oh, isn't and um, is it the the Matthew Sweet interview that he it was something he wanted to do in every story, and and sometimes they were going to be in other languages, um, so you might have like a German or a, a Chinese title, but it it sort of got phased out, I think. But yeah, it's a really nice idea that that would uh, that that would go through. Yeah, yeah, I think I think doing it every story would be a bit too arch, but doing it and especially doing it in some stories where it's totally fleeting. As you say, yeah. uh, so I'm in Paradise Towers makes it a lot more effective, and it, it becomes a reward for the eagle-eyed viewer rather than okay, when's he going to do it this week? I think it, it's a fleeting thing. It's like uh, the the hair in Inside Number Nine, isn't it? Where there's uh, every episode features a hair somewhere, mm-hmm. and it's just kept spotting it, whether it's like a picture on the wall or a, an ornament or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. It's, yeah. It's because the police <laughs> yeah, they say a fleeting thing that if if you know it's there to look for it, it's uh, it, it's quite a nice idea. Yeah, so. yes, yeah, it's, it's like Eccleston doesn't say fantastic in every story, and mm. you know even even Big Finish have resisted the urge to have him say it in every episode that he does. You know, but it's still the thing he's known for, which is which is fine. But it it. It did actually, I think he does it once in the first three stories. And I remember in 2005 going, okay, when's he going to do it in this one? And there comes up an episode where he doesn't do it. And it's like, okay, that's good. <laughs> because, because you stop looking then and, you know, you're not, you're not distracted. Um, I think possibly it was the intention that he was going to do it every single one. And then maybe by Unquiet Dead, they went, mm, okay, let, 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 let's not be quite so knowing. <laughs> That 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 idea is a bit rubbish. Let's let's rest that over. Fantastic <laughs> of the Daleks. Yeah. Um, like back when I was doing Planet Scarrow audios, I had this wonderful idea that my my Doctor would slip um, song lyrics into dialogue, and um, I wrote the first couple myself, and then I acted them. I'm like it. it it, because I've come up with the idea, it's impossible for me to do it in a naturalistic way. So I think we only ended ended up keeping like two or three of them. <laughs> um, and I still listen back to them and I go, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we don't do that all the time. I'm, yeah, <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that, dear. <laughs> but it's good for the kids, like, uh, you know, because we, we always assume kids aren't going to be cultured. It's when... when um, in Ghost Light, um, and the doctor says he, he's had a hard day's night, and I, I was, and I thought it's the Beatles because yes. my mum and dad listened to the Beatles, so I knew, you know, and these things, you know, we always assume like kids watching are like going to have no culture at all. Of course they do. Of course yes, they do. Yes. Um, 
I can't remember which doctor it was who said it, but they basically said you you can't lie to a child. No. Chil- children no. detect lies. If if yeah. if if you say to if you, sort of if you say to a child, look, we know this isn't quite the thing, but go along with it. They'll go along with it more than if you pretend that that really is a nice sculpture. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a great launching pad as well, Doctor. It, it points you in the direction of things. You know, there's things that I've read, like the Prisoner of Zender, because. I, I love the androids of Tara, and then the thing that always gets said about the androids of Tara is that it's, it's a riff on um, Prisoner of Zender. So I read that and loved that as well. So it's um, it, even if it's not something you're already familiar with, it, it, it's it's a good um, good direction there to, to point people in, isn't it? And also yeah. words that no one else uses, like hiatus and yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indefinable what? magic. Yeah, diamond. <laughs> I'm worthy of the diamond logo. <laughs> <laughs> I I do try and um, I have tried. Uh, it's easy when you I work in academia, and um, I have occasionally uh, been asked for directions. Always room such and such lecture hall, this or that or the other, and I go, oh, I know. All these corridors look the same. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and every brilliant. time I say it in my, in my mind's eye, there's a little ding, number one. It's <laughs> <laughs> eyes one as well, isn't it? From um, 30 Years in the TARDIS, it's, it's Mary Whitehouse's um, Deadly Assassin. Uh, yes. <laughs> isn't it? I can see it in my mind's eye. <laughs> um, one of my favourites of, of those sorts of things, and I have so much respect for the man for everything he did, everything he did for the show. Um, Tom Spilsbury, ex-editor of Doctor Who magazine, who just has this wonderful, calm presence whenever he's interviewed. Um, when those two Troughton stories came back, uh, he did a series of radio interviews, and someone else at Doctor Who magazine uh, had a bet with him that he had to slip in Hartnell episode titles into the interviews. <laughs> And so, and someone did a mega cut video of it, and the one that is the most triumphant is he says something like, "These stories have come back completely unexpectedly, like they were carried by a rider from Shangtu." <laughs> 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 and it's just it's just because he's usually like so 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 deadpan and even keeled that he does them completely deadpan of course the interviewers have no idea but the doctor who fans listening are rolling in the aisles at that <laughs> um i'm just trying to think of any doctor who phrases i've sort of slipped in i think as a kid i did actually use um still some malapropisms uh from this uh yeah, yeah. I, and I do, I do often like just mentally think where there's a will, there's a Tom, Dick, and a Harriet, <laughs> which I I just love. Um, I'll sometimes say uh, diabolical ingenuity from the Five Doctors. Yes, 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 yes. I'll use that one. Oh God! Uh, at, oh, absence makes the nose grow fonder. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, absence absence makes the nose grow longer, not grow fonder. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I I love Mark Breenstreet's reactions to those, and he's and uh, like every time he comes up with one of those, and he goes, "You're probably right." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a thing you clearly say on your planet. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I know what you mean, but yeah, you're a little weird. <laughs> um. 
Actually, but yeah, you're talking, but, I'm pleased they didn't carry on. I am quite pleased they didn't really go beyond yeah. uh, Time of the Rani. Yeah, that's the thing. I think I think it is a thing that works once. And I love that Big Finish introduced a reason that doesn't happen anymore in um, in Bang Bang a Boom at one point. Mel, uh, he, do, he does like three of them in rapid succession and Mel turns around and says, is this a feature of your new personality? Because it's really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but on, on the topic of Mark Greenstreet, something this era does, and it starts this season, is it constantly introduces a supporting character who you can easily imagine as a companion. Yeah. And so something that Janet comments on in these behind the sofas is, is she's like, there's only one companion. Like we, we were lousy with companions and there's only one now. And, but I think Andrew Cartnell sort of recognizes the better dynamic is to have two companions, but rather than have two companions knocking around in the TARDIS, you get Icona, you get Pex, you get, um, and they're all very attractive young men, aren't they? Yes. Yes. (laughs) They're all Stevens. (laughs) Or Ian's. Yes. Because there's no point in because Carmel doesn't like TARDIS scenes as well, it doesn't make any difference because it's not like they're having the the earlier in the eighties big long scenes where they're all in the TARDIS together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they just land and arrive and then immediately meet a companion. So it yeah, it's um it fits with the with that kind of ethos as well, doesn't it? And it yeah. carries on, doesn't it, with um Mike, although he turned out to be a traitor in the end, didn't he? Mm. Um, and you got Anselin in season twenty six. Yeah, um, what what one of my favourites for it uh, is Happiness Patrol, where the Doctor gets Earl Sigma, and yeah. um, Ace gets uh, Susan Q. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. She gets her own. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Ace later is she she's constantly given really good um, sympathetic characters to bounce off. So like Mike, as you say, and the undercutting thing with Mike is. You know, Icona, Pex, Binliner, Fire Escape, Ray, Billy, uh, even Glitz, you know, they're good guys. Like, Glitz has been retooled here to be a better character, a better person. And then Mike comes along and you think he's charming and lovely and what have you. Um, And there's a deleted scene in that, and it's totally the right decision, where he's looking at Ace and Rachel and Allison start sort of teasing him a bit that he could fancy her, and he says... I need to know more about it. I wouldn't like it to be foreign. And it's like, that's putting the horse before the cart. Yeah. You know, because yeah. we should find out when Ace finds out. Yeah. yeah. Kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and the reason I think it's so effective to have those supporting companions, if you like, is it brings something new out in the companion each story. Um, because with these, the thing I have watched all the way through on the set at the moment is the extended episodes. And there's a brilliant extension to the pecs ripping a lamp off the wall scene. Um, like Mel, as it's broadcast, Mel gets frustrated and says, look, I can't waste time doing this. But the extended version gives Mel so much more character. And she literally says to pecs, are you bothering me because no one else in this building can stand you, you ridiculous man? And it's to the point where it's like, wow, that's that's almost cruel. Like, you're right, but my God. Mm. But watching that, I'm like, 
that is the hidden depth that Bonnie talks about not always being there. And it's like, you put that in. If that is in the broadcast episode, I think the whole discourse around Mel in the early 90s would have been totally different. Mm-hmm. And it shows it's there with the character and it's there with the actress because it's absolutely brilliant and blistering. Um, and it it brings out that side of Mel because, you know, Icona, the whole thing with her and Icona is she says to him, no, you're too timid, we need to attack, attack, attack. With Peck, she's saying, you need to calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I always liked Mel, um, but mm. even you know, like when I was a kid and being an adult as well, I always liked her because she was always gung ho and running into the adventure. She wasn't, yes. yeah, I know she screamed a lot, and that's what she she's known for. And um, but she was all, always running into the adventure. She's in um, Terror of the not all songs, Vervoids, Terror of the Vervoids in the season before. She was awesome. She was figuring things out. She was, you know, like she was, you know, like the doctor wasn't telling her what was going on, which I think presages um, Sylvester McCoy a bit. Mm. Um, and they're doing their own, and then she just, and then she says, "Oh, you knew anyway. For goodness' sake, why didn't you tell me?" Mm. And then in time of the Rani, like you say, she's saying, "Let's go and storm the citadel. Let's go and do this. Let's go and do that." She was great. You know, I mean, admittedly, when she saw anything remotely alien, she screamed her lungs out. Yeah. And, but at least she tried. You know, exactly. God loves to try. Yeah. <laughs> Screaming, uh, be, when I've been watching through this set over, over the last few weeks, and my Mel, my wife's called Mel as well. Um, <laughs> Every time she screams, if, if Mel's been in the room, she's been she's just been doing something on the laptop or something like that. Every time she sort of clutches her head and goes, "Ah, I hate that. I hate it." It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever. There's the pitch in particular just really puts through her. So it's just sort of like waiting for her to scream, and I'm going, oh, "No." Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, well, Mel, I think I I cannot make sense of her leaving. Uh, no matter how many times no. I watch it. There's no attempt to seed it in the episode. She hasn't got on with Glitz. Uh, it's not like they've particularly struck up a rapport or you know anything like that. And it it seems like such a shame that it you know it was it was there to do. Um, but but for yeah the, the way it's done and that's a rewritten ending. So they do she does at least have a bit of time with the Doctor and that's quite nice. And and I really like that side of McCoy. But. Yeah, just just the decision and the way it comes about, it's uh, it's such a shame, isn't it? It, it? it was bad, wasn't it? Suddenly grabbing somebody's, you know, like the said with Leela, suddenly grabbing somebody's hand and saying, "We're getting married." Yeah. <laughs> we said we said two sentences together. We were getting out, getting married. Yeah, um, wasn't it retrospectively? Wasn't it retconned that um, the doctor was like kind of mentally telling her to go? So because he recognised Ace was part of Fenric's. I think it might have been a new adventures thing. Yeah, maybe. head games, yeah. head games. Uh, yeah, and That's I think, it. yeah, I think the BBC books came up with another explanation, and now Big Finish have come up with another explanation. Um, and look, I think that's fine. That you know, that post rationalization is fine. I I agree with you that the yeah her whole reason for leaving, and it's like even if Glitz you know has been made a softer character, um, he's just sold all his mates. To become ice zombies, <laughs> Mel, Mel, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and it, 
it, it, it's funny. I remember years ago, um, I think it was Clayton Hickman uh, was talking about the the regeneration and, you know, how Colin didn't do it. And he said, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, the way to do the pre-title sequence would have been you have Mel wandering through the TARDIS corridors and saying, Doctor, Doctor, oh, there you are. And the camera moves across and it's Sylvester McCoy and it's already happened. And, you know, it happened last week and Mel's gotten used to it. And you do something new and interesting with that. And I think in that vein, you could have done, um, yeah, Ace comes on board and Mel says to the Doctor, you know what? I really want to go home. It's like I've had I have had a great time with you, but I want to, I want to go back home, and I I want to get like what watching Kane. I realise that time is fleeting, and I want to go home. And just next season opens with Ace, yeah. and so the de- yeah. the departure scene isn't necessarily the departure, but it's you can still have all the same dialogue, and the Doctor says, "Okay, I'll drop you home." There and then still would have been the gaps there for Big Finish to fill. Let's totally, it, so. totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other benefit there is, if Sophie Aldred hadn't been absolutely brilliant, which she is, um, you could have opened the next season with the Doctor saying, you know, both of my friends decided to go home. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, but Or you just, open, you just open it and um, they're in 1963 and Ace is like, what are we doing here? And he said, well, you know, after we dropped Mel off, I thought I'd pop back for a bit of history. Boom. You're done. Um, but of course, at this time in the show, um, you know, you've got to show the regeneration and you've got to show the companion walking out of the TARDIS. The funny thing being last year, they did a companion departure where you don't really see what happens. And they did a companion arrival where you don't really see what happens. And I kind of wish, I kind of wish they'd done that here. It works when you're, when you're a five-year-old watching it. I, I, you know, I remember thinking, oh, that's really emotional. Mel's going to go off and have adventures and isn't that lovely. <laughs> but by the time you get to about 12, you're like, really? Um, what? <laughs> I, th- I think it's Paul Cornell says, maybe Mel fancies a bit rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think perhaps she did. Or maybe she'd seen the photo of Dibble, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't in the ice zombies, I'm just saying. Where Where is he? <laughs> I, I looked up Dibble because I was watching it and I was thinking, where the hell was Dibble? And there's two, like, so many stories have been written, so many books, etc. And in some he's already died, and in some yep. he joins Mel and Glitz later. So. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah. So we've mentioned behind the sofa a couple of times. Amazing here that we've got four doctors on them. Yeah. Uh, like to, to get that lineup, it, it made me really think it would be great maybe for a 60s set to get three of the doctors together. Um, you know, because you've got like, you know, Sylvester McCoy, Peter Davison have talked about their memories of Patrick Trout and watching that, you know, when they were younger. Mm. That would be great to get their perspective in that way. I mean, it works. It works really well that you've got them with, uh, you know, with their own companions or, or contemporaries um, in this one, and and especially for Colin Baker to see the series that he would have been in potentially, uh, you know, had had he had he um, stayed in the role, had, had they not got rid of him. Yeah. Um, his perspective on that is, is is really really interesting. And then, like you say, with, with Peter Davison and. Janet Film, they're just completely irreverent, <laughs> aren't they, about it? I, I love Janet and Sarah together. And, and, and I forget what she keeps 
What she says as Sarah goes to Janet, you don't like my car. Why would you want my car? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're clearly really good mates. They've known each other for decades. Yeah. Um, and Peter Davison um, being really deliberately grumpy because Sylvester McCoy is his daughter's favourite doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but then you've got Colin Baker and Michael Jason. And and, um, and it, they they work really well because... Michael doesn't he doesn't know he doesn't know what the hell is going on. Why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we watching? I can't remember. Yeah. And Colin's going, no, come on, come on, darling, you know. It's <laughs> absolutely hysterical. Um I I was so it, it it filled my heart with joy watching Colin Baker enjoy these stories so much. Mm-hmm. You know, he's saying, Oh, I I wish I was in this. This is like with, with Paradise Towers, he's going, This is so funny, and the characters are so well drawn, and oh my god, look at the cast, kind of thing. And, you know, uh, like Colin says in interviews, he still feels um, betrayed by what happened, you know. And some people might look at that and go, Oh my god, but it was so long ago. Yeah, it was so long ago, but it was such a pivotal time in his life. And, you know, um, I won't go into details, but it was a time where he experienced great tragedy and then Doctor Who became a source of great joy for him and then was, and then was taken away. Um, and, of course, he's had the revival and the reappraisal and he's magnificent in Big Finish. Uh, but for him to come in and be able to look at what could have been and look at it with joy and love, it's, it, it is a testament not only to the stories themselves, which are so joyful, but to the man. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's lovely watching him just sit there wrapped by Kate O'Mara and Elizabeth Springs and, Ju- and the, it, like the whole, um, the whole behind the sofa of um, Paradise Towers is just various people going, Richard Briers? Yeah. <laughs> What's Elizabeth Springs doing here? Judy Cornwall? Oh, she was married to Mark Strickson. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um yeah, and like I, I've only seen Time of the Rani and Paradise Towers ones, but I have not seen Janet enjoy herself on Behind the yeah. Sofa as much as these, and that includes hers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, can I? Into you just mentioned Kate O'Mara. The, there is a wonderful bit on the behind the scenes on Time of the Rani, and it's from the scene where everything's going right for the Rani, and she's standing in front of the giant brain. And she's like this, and her chest is healing, and she's giving it her all, and she's absolutely overjoyed. And then you hit, and then this runner sidles on, touches her lightly on the shoulder, and says, "Save the orgasm for later, darling." <laughs> <laughs> and then she collapses into laughter. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's she's probably the person who's lost you feel the greatest that that you know she, yeah. she's not around behind the sofa to do the uh you know to do the the behind the scenes documentaries and mm. things like that she's um yeah you, you just get to see though that's the yeah. the only insight really is those be, the uh, making uh, behind the scenes bits isn't it yeah and it's kind of like what we do have of her behind the scenes she is so warm and effusive about the show about the actors, um, about 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 all the talent. You know, she is she is someone who had uh, like an extraordinary career 
Uh, and when she talks about it, she spends her time praising everyone else. You know, what a pro. Um, what a pro. And it, it's kind of like, you know, she plays Joan Collins' sister. And we know from interviews that Joan Collins is, I'm not saying is self-centered, but is not as giving to the people around her in her interviews. Um, yeah. And yeah, an absolute pro. And uh, yeah, I think she would have totally, uh, if it wasn't Michael Jason there, I think she would have been next to Colin. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And, and having a wow of a time and, and probably at, <laughs> at the top of each one. No, I'm not in this one. Am I? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was fascinating to watch her on the studio floor and something I never noticed about time with the Rani is that the Rani keeps a tissue up her sleeve like everybody's mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's prepared. She's prepared. Well, she was she was wonderful when she was working with Sylvester and you know, bear in mind that Sylvester's new in the role and it's this big old mad camp show and things. And she's and they're working together like they've been working for years. Mm. And they're just being so nice to each other and so kind. Um, and Sylvester was just really, really kind to a lot of actors on the studio footage. You know the scene in Dragonfire where the um, henchman looks like he, he nothing going through his brain, but it turns out to be an intellectual? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And... And he's got really complicated lines in that, and they keep <laughs> having to go again. But it's not his fault, and he keeps. And but he, he loses it, loses his thread after that. And Sylvester goes, "Oh, what you need to do is this," and you know, and he coaxes him through it. And the and the and the actor playing the guard goes, "Yes, okay, okay," and takes on board. And you can that's Sylvester teaching him how to do it. It's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um. But part of part of Silver's interview on this, he says that a lot of the directors were very technical directors and didn't necessarily show the actors what to do. And I think I think mm. that's why Silver behaves in that way because he um, he's spoken elsewhere that especially when once Sophie came on, they had a discussion and they're like, "We're the leaders. We have to we on set. We have to set the tone and we have to make sure everyone's having a good time." And I, I don't think he's ever revealed who it is, but he has said, like, in, in the three, in the three years, no, actually, he has said who it is. He's like, in the three years, there was only one person who didn't then become part of the atmosphere. And he's like, that was Anton Differing. And that, and, and so I was like, that's because whenever he wasn't recording something, he was off listening to Wimbledon. That was the whole reason he did the show. Yeah. And he's like, you know, we can understand that. He, he wasn't getting in the way, but he just wasn't joining in. Um, yeah, so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that Sylph would see an actor struggling and say, oh, you know, come here, let's do it like this, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that collaborative spirit really comes across because people people say of this year, and I think there is a point to it, that sometimes people seem to be pulling in different directions. And something like Paradise Towers, which I think is the best story this season, it's not my favourite, but it's the best in my opinion, um, in terms of how it's made, you do have all the different factions pulling in in different directions and giving slightly different performances and what have you. Um, especially Richard Bryars, who admits when he was interviewed about it that he was totally sending it up um, because he thought it called for that heightened performance. But everyone's pulling in different directions, but everyone's giving it a hundred percent and having fun and, yeah. and what have you. So, so you can sort of you can sort of forgive that. But I. But I also think when you have 
sort of chief, when you have the caretakers who are giving one kind of performance, talking to the Kangs who are giving another kind of performance, they do modify slightly to meet the other actor. Mm. Um, and it's like when Judy Cornwall is talking to the Kangs about, yeah, we're very sorry, we won't eat you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great thing. And oh, actually the extended version of that scene uh, when Judy Cornwall first meets Sylvester McCoy, she gives him a very flirtatious look and he gives her a very, like we're talking Pat Troughton kind of flirting with uh, Mary Peach kind of thing. <laughs> um, and she's not Mary Peach and she's not Nakatsu. And it's kind of like, I kind of wish that was left in because I'm watching that going, is the doctor being sexy? Is Maddie about to eat him? What is going on here? <laughs> Uh, but what a theory I've come up with watching those deleted bits with Maddie a bit more closely is that Matt, like Maddie seems to be the youngest of the resis. I think Maddie was a Kang. Oh, and she yeah. does, she does have a very childlike quality and a very childlike glee. And she knows how to do the, how you do hand thing. Because she does it with yeah. Fire Escape at one point. I think Maddie was a Kang, and like the Kangs, she hasn't quite grown up into adulthood mentally. Yeah. And and that that look she gives the Doctor is actually a lot like the child in Dragonfire. It is a child's trusting look of this instinctive knowledge yeah. of, of um, I can trust you, I know you, I can trust you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you might be right there. It's a, it's a I, I I love that uh, world of Paradise Towers because it is so textured and you can just imagine it. And it's I know it's based on high rise, but it's you, you can the way it's written it, you can completely imagine it. We don't even know where it is. You know, we don't even know what planet it's on because mm-hmm. we don't go outside and there's no real reason to go outside. Um Another thing about that is the um, the extras on the Blu-ray um, is that you can see what a pro uh, Bonnie Langford is and yep. you can actually see happening um, what we've all read about for years about how cold that swimming pool was. Um, <laughs> and um, but I never thought we'd actually ever see that. I never entered my head that we'd ever actually see that. But, and then she gets in and she goes, you know, and she's shaking and shaking. And then they say action and you wouldn't know it. You'd think it was the warmest swimming pool in the world. Yeah. And all, all that effort. And, and um, yeah, it's it, when I was a kid, the Paradise Towers was completely and utterly believable. It yes. really was. It was this enclosed world. It's almost like a base under siege, but the threat is within the base. Because mm. you don't see outside, because there is no outside. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the comics from Cutaway Comics, with a continuation of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's nice how a lot of these stories are getting uh, getting a, a further life, aren't they? Because the um, we the uh, you know the, the whole McCoy era, because um, Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel wrote um, a Seventh Doctor countermeasures team comic strip i think for titan like you say there's the paradise towers one here um i think big finish have, have done some series where mags from yeah. the galaxy as well joins the tardis and uh yeah they're, they're so the characters the settings are so rich aren't they that that 
you know, probably more so than some other areas, they really beg to uh, to, to see what happens next and, and get continuations of them. The, the universe of the McCoy era has a particular look and it has a particular feel. And quite rightly, that changes over time, but it feels very different from the Colin Baker era. Like, mm-hmm. I I always put it in my head canon as these doctors just go to different places that have a particular feel that matches them. Um, but it's um, yeah. but even when in Paradise Towers, it still feels very comic booky, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. No, <laughs> there's absolutely no. nothing wrong with that because graphic novels and comics are actually really, really damn complex when they mm. want to be. So mm-hmm. it, it it's a bit like um, you know different producers of Doctor Who decide to base Doctor Who on different things. So Philip Hinchcliffe said, I'm going to base Doctor Who on universal monster movies and monster movies of the 30s and 40s. Uh, Graham Williams comes along with a lot more of a literary mind. And in some cases, you know, you do get the androids of Tara, which is just a direct ripoff. Um, Christopher Bibmead and I think Verity Lambert as well went, I'm going to choose a really strong scientific principle and that's what the story's about. Um, season 19 through to 22, I think the production team made it harder for themselves in that I think they set themselves the challenge of we don't want to have a direct source. We want to create something wholly new. And as such, some of those worlds sometimes feel very hollow. And the ones that don't are things like um, Diva Loca and Manusa in the Mara stories where the writer has gone, I'm basing this on a philosophy. Or Planet of Fire, it's like, uh, this is, you know, this is a comment on religion sort of thing. Even Vengeance on Varos has a very interesting world because Philip Martin is like, okay, what if, first of all, what if people are right about video nasties and what if we take it to a, a big conclusion? Yeah. Whereas, yeah, the McCoy era has that comic sensibility and hangs its hat on that of these worlds are hyper-stylized. And, yeah, I just look at it and I think, okay, so Time and the Rani, we had the Rani reaps the whirlwind. Paradise Towers is getting a comic series. Uh, We haven't revisited the Shimmerans. We don't know what's happening with them. Um, (laughs) We have had three different explanations of what happens to Mel after Dragonfire. You know, and I... Almost every story in the Silver Era, a piece of the extended media has picked it up. Um, Peter Angelides with his story about the uh, the ginger doctor, the red-headed doctor, and his companion Gwyn, you know, from offhand comments in Battlefield. It's, yeah, it's an era that I think because of the budgetary restrictions, you're invited to imagine what else happens. It's kind of like, you compare that to something like Time Lash, which directly tells you that this is a sequel to a story you haven't seen with the third Doctor. No one has written that story. Yeah, good point. You know, um, and the thing is, I quite like Time Lash, and I think Glenn McCoy tried to do something interesting, and I think if Glenn McCoy had had a second story, he would have refined it. Um, But, yeah, it's kind of like it doesn't particularly invite you to imagine what that story was like. Whereas Paradise Towers, you can go forwards or backwards. You can say, okay, how did we get into this position? And that's going to be an interesting story. Or you can go, what happened after the Doctor left? And that's an interesting story. And, yeah, I like, 
actually, I think that's the thing with Time Lash. Time Lash ends and the Doctor's solved the problem and, you know, the Bandrels are going to get their grain and um, Mina, Vina, whatever her name is, is going to be the new Malin and she'll be fine. And it's kind of like, okay, that's all wrapped up really neatly. There's no sort of rough edge there. Whereas Paradise Towers, yeah, everyone's been brought together at Pex's funeral, but what happens in 10 minutes? It's like, are they going to keep working together? You don't know. um, Happiness Patrol. Is the Happiness Patrol going to become an underground resistance? You know, that's that's a question question to ask. Uh, You know, Earl Sigma isn't from here. He's going to be going home soon. What's the relationship with Susie Q going to be? What happened to Gilbert and Harold? (laughs) You know, um, yet this era bursts with promise deliberately. It's not, we haven't thought about this. It's okay. Over to you. You can decide what happens. Yeah. And they kind of explored that when it came back in 2005 with, uh, it removes the threat in the long game. And then leaves. See ya. Bye. Mm. And then come back, Wolf, um, and realizes mucks it up. And again, um, in the Villa of Oh God, not got to say a rude word here. Villa of Dido Darcy, is mm-hmm. it? Yep. Yeah, and, the um, Villa Darcy. Yeah, yeah. And she makes the wrong decision, <laughs> and then, but they, you know, like in the next episode, like she said, well, she says. Right, we've got to go and sort out the mess that we've just made. But sometimes it's it's it, you know I can see that's the new series, that's the modern series way of doing it. But we can we can imagine what what comes afterwards mm-hmm. because you know, and that's the whole thing about the Doctor and and his friends is that they come in and they solve one problem and then they go away feeling all smug. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, I mean, not to. Uh, not to sort of, um, you know, minimize what's happening at the moment in Afghanistan, but that's, you know, mm. toppling one regime and not putting anything in place. And, and this is what the McCoy doctor does, isn't it? He, he topples regimes, but doesn't stay around to, um, to put anything. Fucking sort of, power. Yeah. He doesn't put anything meaningful in place to, um, yeah. Yeah, to what happens next. So some inspirational stuff is slightly mysterious and yeah. <laughs> it's off to have a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, what did you think of the um, Sylvester McCoy interview? Because I thought you could really see why he is who he is. Yeah, I mean, I think every single one of these Matthew Sweet ones, you know, these people have been interviewed hundreds of times. They trot out the same well-polished uh, anecdotes every time. And he he deftly avoids asking anything that could that they could just trot these out. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know any of that stuff about his childhood, his background. I'd love him to write an autobiography. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think that would be fantastic. Um, I, I think the only thing he couldn't avoid, and it seems like a reflex with Sylvester McCoy, is the they lost me for three days. He says yep. it twice. <laughs> in he says it in behind the sofa. I can only imagine they edited it out of the Here's to the Future documentary. He just <laughs> to be just such an automatic response in him. Um, but yeah, you've you got to kind of laugh that he, he cuts it out every opportunity, doesn't he? But yeah, yeah absolutely fascinating um, about his past. Uh, yeah, and, and just what the tragic with his parents as well, like completely yeah. tragic. Mm. Yeah, mm. It, it really is. And it's like you can, 
and looking at the formation of his personality and the direction that he went in and all that footage from the Ken Campbell's Roadshow. That was extraordinary. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I heard the the ferret down the trousers thing before, but but not seen any of that stuff. Um, and also he said that people started copying it, but they were doing it where the ferret went into a pocket, so it was actually safe, but people were doing it for real. Just as a side note, like I've heard Ken Campbell's uh, roadshow or whatever tons and tons of times, but didn't actually know who Ken Campbell was. But then when I saw a clip of him on one of these sets and immediately sort of transported back to, he must have been in some kids' show that I watched. I can't, it's it's so, like, on the tip of my mind. He was in well, loads of things back then. He was like well, um, Will Flung, you know, he was in a few things as well. There's some specific thing that I must have watched loads when I was a kid where he played, and he's probably always played, but like a quite an edgy, dangerous sort of character, and it's it's so weird because I'm I'm so transported. I've looked through IMDb and I can't see any sort of likely things or things that look familiar. But yeah, just a real, <coughs> a real more of a sensation. The feeling of watching him. Yeah, yeah. He, he was always, always been anarchic and a bit mad. And yeah, he, he was around at the time when we were kids. And he would have been, he, he was quite often guest on guest shows, I think. And, you know, if you if wanted something a bit madcap and then the invite Ken Campbell along. Um, I feel like it must have been his show that I'm thinking of. And I feel like it'll it'll gradually come back because it's just like, it's like reawakened. Yeah, yeah. just like impression of him or something. But um, he, he yeah, is a bit doctorish, isn't he, though? Yeah, and, and all the stuff in this are interesting that McCoy was up against him for the part, yeah. but, but didn't know at the time, you know, that he was, he was kind of his mentor. Mm. What did you think of the audition tapes? Yeah. <laughs> um, well. Oh, <laughs> God. Yeah. What what was Dermot Crowley doing? <laughs> um, I guess time I should be going, ooh, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> God bless well, me. We've, <laughs> we've talked, like you said about group chat, that if he played um, Luther's boss in Luther, like you played that audition, it would be a very different show, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that that being said, uh, is it is it David Fielder who's the other one mm. with the mustache? Yeah. I I think he certainly had his moments. He he was giving it a very interesting thing, especially in the companion departure scene. Uh, he seems to be playing it like he doesn't understand emotions, which is something which informs, um, well, I say informs, it's something that turns up again in Paul McGann's um, sort of post-Lucy Miller stories. And I think something that turns up in Jodie Whittaker's incarnation as well. Um, and Capaldi a little bit as well. Capal- yeah, Capaldi a little bit too. Um, and there's there's just this little bit where after Janet Fielding sort of storms off and the camera like lingers on David Fielder for his close-up that he it, it, he's playing it like, oh, I, I, think I, I think I almost get it. And then he dismisses it and walks off. And it's like... 
you know, I wouldn't change Sylvester for anyone, but I'm like, actually, you could have you could have done this interestingly. And I've so, I've sort of looked him up, and yeah, he wasn't sort of wildly successful, unfortunately. And you know, so many so many actors do do not have like as many credits as Sylvester McCoy or Dermot Crowley. Mm. Uh, but I watched that and I go, that you know, that's a shame. I think I think there's a lot of talent there. Um, whereas I think I think Dermot Crowley had not seen the show for many years, but had seen Jim Broadbent and Lenny Henry send it up and thought that's what the show was. Yeah. <laughs> it's very broad. <laughs> and you can see, uh, wasn't it um, that John Nathan Turner definitely wanted Sylvester McCoy, but they he didn't have the decision. Mm. So he put in. So he sent them three tapes, and Sylvester McCoy was the middle one, who by far and above the most suited to the role. Not to denigrate yes. the other two actors. Um, yes. Yeah, and how yeah. wonderful was Janet Fielding in that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I, I want to see her as a villain. <laughs> yeah. I was watching a Hammer House of Horror on uh, BritBox recently, and she pops up in that for about two scenes. Wow. Um, yeah, and and uh, like the, the there was this scene where they're shooting a film crew was shooting a scene, and uh, and she's the secretary and she answers the phone and and I thought, oh, it's Janet Fielding. <laughs> <laughs> and what what about the Patricia Quinn interview? She's she's wonderful. I want to go out on a night out with Patricia Quinn. I am mistaking my claim here. <laughs> she's marvellous. I will have a few gins with her. <laughs> I only know from Dragonfire. I've uh, I've never seen um, Rocky Horror Picture or anything. So um, it's it's yeah, it's one of those things that everyone's seen that that I've never got around to watching. So yeah, I, I only know from that. But yeah, that um, yeah, she's uh, <laughs> quite something, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. Um, I I I wanted to see if she had mentioned Aiden Zane, and and she didn't. Um, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Aiden Zane is a um, uh, British drag queen. No, American. Sorry, an American drag queen uh, who appeared on RuPaul's Drag Race. And as part of RuPaul's Drag Race, they do something called a snatch game, which is like Hollywood Squares. And each of the queens have to impersonate a celebrity. And Aiden chose to impersonate Patricia Quinn because Aiden said, "I love Patricia Quinn. Um, I went to a sort of meet and greet lunch with her, and it was amazing. And I, I've studied her, and etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera, and proceeded to play the most unlike Patricia Quinn, Patricia Quinn you have ever seen. Kind of looked a bit like her, but was just going on about how she'd done so many drugs in the 70s that she couldn't remember anything. And it led Patricia Quinn to release a statement saying, not only have I never met this person, I was n- I was one of the few people not doing excessive amounts of drugs in the 70s. I have a very clear memory, and I did not recognise myself at all in the performance. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, my God, when you do a celebrity, a comedy celebrity impression so bad that celebrity says, celebrity's like, I want to distance myself from this. Um, and that's the thing. Her statement, I don't think, was cruel. It was just, I'm a bit hurt that this person says they're a fan. <laughs> I remember and, watching that thinking, I wonder what she thinks. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing was, it wasn't even funny on its own merits. No. It's a bit like, you know, you can do an impersonation of someone that's nothing like them, and that's the joke. Mm. But, mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a, a bit like putting, you know, a bit like losing Sylvester for three days in, in Colin's coat. Um, yeah, look, I have to say, I've watched the commentary for Time and the Rani, <laughs> the Behind the Sofa, the Sylve interview, the Doctor's Table. He mentions it in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I've been to, like, three conventions with him, and he mentions it at all. And, of course, you're going to have new people who, like, okay, uh, he, uh, right, he, I'm going to blame at this, but here's my, my secret shame. Um, I discovered Doctor Who fandom in 1995 in the lead-up to the telly movie, and I started going to meetings and buying reference books and what have you, and I bought a reference book which revealed that, actually, Colin Baker was not in the regeneration scene. And it was Sylvester McCoy in a wig. So here I am as a 12-year-old telling people this fascinating piece of information. And, of course, all of them said to me, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you didn't know that? I'm like, so that piece of information about losing him in the costume, it's always going to be news to someone. <laughs> yes, yeah, quite. All these yeah. old anecdotes that are... That that are, that are trotted out and um, yeah, and 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 that's the wonderful thing about these Blu-rays is that um, is that it, it's kind of like almost a refresh. A lot of the material is it feels a lot fresher and it's a lot more comprehensive. Um, bear in mind that this is the season that turned me into a fan, and I have been ever since this season, which is a long time. Let's face it. It's. I feel like I know more about it now than I ever did because we are spoiled as Doctor Who fans. I mean, just having so hours and of days and days and days of behind the studio footage, new interviews, new mm -hmm. features. Um, it's just. It, it, it's just absolutely mind-boggling, and it feels like you're wading through in a good way like you're wading through the information or all, all the information that's presented. Cause when you get it and you, and, and I thought that's me done for the next three months and it took me two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I just watched nothing else. I didn't want to see anything else. I just wanted to absorb never in, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would, that such a thing would exist. Um, I'm just very grateful to the wonderful team behind it for putting my childhood obsession and putting so much love into it and even the cover art is gorgeous. Yeah. Oh the they, yeah. There's so much work and and it's a lovely thing. Like you say, not only is it being reappraised, but it's almost like a new series in the sense that everybody's watching it at the same time and there's a communal um thing online of of uh you know of, of everybody talking about these stories again and, and discovering the the behind the scenes and um because uh, i suppose the other big thing we haven't mentioned is there's a new making of delta and the bannermen yes yeah yeah uh, which is that uh, there's got so many of the the contributors on that that um that that's really nice i think the revelation for me was right at the end when andrew cantwell says that um billy is turning into a, a more of a, a more like Delta, a sort of a, a greenish sort of 
king of, of the Shimmerons because I had totally assumed for all these years that he was going to turn into one of the green um, kind of army men type yeah. that you were at the start. And he didn't know what they looked like, so he didn't know what he was letting himself in for. <laughs> <laughs> and they skirt around the whole sex issue really carefully, don't they? Because <laughs> it's basically all about that. There's no men there, so the species is dead. Mm. But, you know, it's... Oh, boy, uh, Billy. <laughs> um, I, I, I also really love how how warm and funny uh, Belinda Maine is, yeah, because yeah. you know De- Delta Delta shows very little in in the way of happiness or pleasure or anything like that, and understandably for the context of the story, but it means you don't see the actor doing that in that in that role, um, and just to see her, you know, laughing about the filming and how what what a great time she had, etc. I, I, I stuff. Yeah, it yeah. does. Um, it totally, totally humanized her. Yeah, yeah. And I loved hearing Malcolm Cole talk about the story on Here's to the Future as well, where he's like, you know, didn't really know what Doctor Who was, and you look at you look at the show, you look at the story, and you're like, yeah, yeah. I kind, I kind of get that this is written by someone who doesn't really know, and that means we get something totally unique. Um, and I can understand why it is such a Marmite story. Like, um, uh, uh, on, on FTE, it was the one Doctor Who VHS Todd never bought. He did, he's, he's mellowed on it since. And I, I, I remember sort of for one Christmas 20 years ago or something, James bought it for him as a joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, you have to have it now. Um, but you know, I to- I totally get why it's such a Marmite story because it is so different, and um, yeah, it's only the second time I think the show has been entirely on location as well. Um, and the the all location stories have a very different energy, um, both with you know the cast as as they say, you know, we were we were together for for two or three weeks or however long it took to shoot. And you bond in that time. But also it has a different energy because there are fewer interior scenes. Mm. But it feels real and lived in because of that, which means the more fantastical elements are easier to to accept. Mm. It's my least favourite of the season. But I but I don't hate it. Mm. I think... I think he's it's, it's probably the one the, the performances for me let it down the most. Um, I think Billy and Delta and Garonwi are just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it feels like an uneven story to me because it's um, the, the bit that always sticks out to me is like you've got the, lots of action, 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 and then you've got a lecture on beekeeping. <laughs> right in the middle. And all of a sudden, you're watching Country File, and, and then, so you're watching. Gromwe says, "Oh, and my bees, and there was pink hibiscus blossom, and this year, 1923." Rah, 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 rah. And then, and then Billy turns to Delta and says, "And what's about you?" And she says, "Well, the life cycle of the shimmer," and, and he's just like, "I've ever seen." And and the lead into that as well, like you've got, I think it's twenty three seconds of let's walk to the shed, <laughs> and um, Kef is going to give us some lovely shed walking music. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, yeah, I think this is this is the story of the season where it's most obvious that actors are pulling in different directions and give and mm. giving performances in different shows. Um, and it's it's less obvious when like you know Billy and Delta are off having their picnic and Garamway's tending to his bees and um, Hawk and Wisemuller are over here. But you bring everyone together. and no one adjusts their performance for each other (laughs) completely yeah it's great where they do do that nobody nobody's doing that in this one but um with so much of sylvester mccoy's era um it was also didn't help it was hacked to bits for time so when you got the extended especially in the episode one and like you got this nice lead in, and then you go, oh, here come the spies, and you know, yeah, and and it just and even Mel's extra dialogue and that extra bit about the TARDIS kitty, and <laughs> oh, how wonderful that the TARDIS has a kitty, yeah, you know, and, and of course there's no money in it; he's spent it all, forgotten to, <laughs> forgotten to fill it up with the Doctor, of course he has, um, but you got all these extra, even even matters of seconds, and it's just smoother. Still nonsense, but smoother nonsense. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, on a, on a related note, uh, Mel's costumes in these first three stories. A lot of people kind of go, "What the hell is she wearing?" Until she gets into that denim outfit, which is great. Um, but I've been watching uh, Poirot recently, making my way through the David Suchet Poirot, and I'm looking at Mel's costumes by Ken True. I think he's going for a 1920s influence. Um, like, especially the line and the patterning on the Paradise Towers outfit is very 20s, and the blazer in the beginning of Delta, very 20s. The skirt, less so. She seems to know she's going to the 50s um, <laughs> before, she does, before she gets there. But, yeah, I think Ken True is kind of looking at Art, Art Deco um, kind of fashion and possibly that's why it's a bit strange to our eye because those kind of patterns were like the eighties was very different in terms of color and lines. Like it was a lot of very harsh lines and a very, a lot of very bright colors. And these are bright colors, but in a different kind of way and much softer lines and what have you. Um, but yes, then Mel gets into a denim outfit. And my God, I love that outfit. Like, the um the outfit she wears in Dragonfire could pass today, I think. Yes, it's, yes. It's a jacket with a hoodie, and yeah, yeah. Th- that's a, it's an it's another really good one. That one, um, and it's a lot more practical. I think I think Bonnie says on one of the special features, one of the best things about working with Sylvester is she didn't have to wear four inch heels anymore, <laughs> 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 just to get the two yeah. shot. Yeah. He is small. I, yeah. I, I went I went to a convention and got signed by him and I couldn't say, you're my favourite dog. So I was like, bah. You know, <laughs> I just couldn't get any words out, but he is, he is quite diddy. Yeah, he, he and I are the same height, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is apt because, you know, diddy men, doddy. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul McGann. Well, um, I think I, I always thought he was tall when I saw him on TV, and uh, when you meet him in real life, he's, he's quite slight, isn't he? Yeah, he's only a few inches taller than Sylvester. Mm. Is he really? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, so that um, that cover shot of him handing the key to Sylvester, it's like he's clearly standing on a box then. He is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sylvester has said that. Sylvester said, Paul and, I are the same, uh, Paul and I are almost the same height, but because it's Hollywood and he's young and pretty, he had to stand yeah, on a box. He has to be taller. But it's also it, that's also why most of those photos are at an angle, to accentuate the height for... <laughs> Like, and and like uh, I think Silver says something like I said to him like are you standing you're standing on a box and Paul's like you get used to it like you know I'm cast <laughs> in these romantic roles and then they realize I'm the same height as the woman so they have me stand on a box they have her like stoop slightly he's like yeah that's acting <laughs> um Com- yeah, almost completely unrelated, but I think Silver has cited him as an as an influence. Don Adams in Get Smart. Barbara Feldon constantly had to like stand on the side of her feet to lower her height by a couple of inches um, so that she wasn't towering over Don Adams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but did Don Adams have a ferret down his trousers? No, he did not. He did not have ferret down there his trousers. That's did your not... title for this episode, Mark. Did Don Adams have the ferret down his trousers? <laughs> <laughs> very natty dresser now, isn't he? You see him in um, in his interview and stuff. He's uh, he's uh, yeah. I mean, probably uh, you have to be an actor probably to get away with it to some yeah. extent. Yeah, um, but like a cool dress sense, I think. Mm. Well, I think you know, as, as he's as he's always said, like he loved the costume except for the pullover. And then when you get mm-hmm. to the telly movie, and he has a bit more control over the costume, and you get that lovely red um, waistcoat, and then you see Silv now, and he he basically dresses like the Doctor without the tie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, same That's same scarf. line. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, he's got he's got the scarf. He's got a, like a a, a light coloured blazer and. And what have you? Um, and it's interesting in the behind-the-scenes footage. There are bits from Delta where you know, obviously, it's summer when they're filming, so he takes off the pullover whenever he can. And there's a bit where he is just standing there in the braces and the tie, and the tie, of course, because it's hidden, is not particularly well tied. You know, it's like slightly longer, slightly shorter, and the and the coat. And someone posted a screen grab of that on Twitter and said, "This is what he should have looked like for three years." And it's like. I love the question mark pullover. I have the question mark pullover. I have worn it to work. <laughs> but I look at that and I go, actually, I get what Sylv was saying now for all these years that it should have just been the umbrella. Yeah. And it's like, and then yeah. you get the new adventures where they're like, yeah, we're going to ditch the, um, you get the new adventures where we're going to ditch the pullover and it is just going to be a tie and yeah, it's a really nice, subtle, understated look. And it, it's like that look, like you say, when the pullover was missing, isn't it? And I suppose that ties into what I was saying earlier about the sort of the inability to to change things. To, you know, uh, having seen what they actually look like, um, because yeah, they they must have seen him look like that, and nobody thought, "Wow, that looks great." Uh, <laughs> No, we'll stick with it for three years. Yeah. We've already sent the pictures off to Daypol, Sylv. We can't change it now. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see the um the Daypol TARDIS console in the um Here's to the Future. I've I've got one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think mine still works. I mean we need to have a little play around with it. But um yes, yeah, the the Doctor and Mel figures 
um, and the uh, the uh, the cons the rotor going up and down. Yeah, and how thrilled oh. is Bonnie when she finds out she can keep the action figure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've recently but, um, found a Sylvester McCoy Daypole figure for £15 in an antique shop. I had them all when I was a kid, and I don't know where the hell they've gone. So I saw it on its own in this lonely little glass case, and I had to buy it. Oh, brilliant. I I have I have a near-complete Daypole collection of like the base figures, like because they would release sets that have one different Dalek, you know, you can get your green and silver Dalek. Um, but I have, I have almost a complete base set. I'm missing one Time Lord. I'm missing the red one. Um, but I have four of the light-coloured Sylvester McCoys because um, I got this job lot um, and I was going to sell one of them. And then I discovered sort of partway through, they changed the construction of the arm. So the arm started out sort of with a blade, like a bladed hand, like just straight, but then they changed it to a, a cupping hand so it can grab the umbrella. Uh, so I kept both of those, but then, um, cl- uh, clearing out my parents' house recently for a move, I found my Sylvester McCoy figure that they bought me at a convention in 1990, I want to say. Um, now the thing was I got it out of the packaging and we were walking from one auditorium to another. This convention was at a university and I dropped him and, um, the lower arm broke off like immediately after getting it out of the packaging. Um, but I, I didn't care. I do remember I kept the arm for a while, but we couldn't figure out how to get it back on. Um, so he's sitting on the shelf behind me with his, um, with his half arm <laughs> and I've kept him. I've also got a, um, a Dalek I had from the time, the pullback and go Daleks, which mm. um, pulled back and went off a table and broke off both its arms. That'll do it. Yeah. Um, my, but, um, my, yeah. the question mark on mine came off the umbrella and oh. bless his heart. My dad found a hook, a suitable size hook screwed it into the rest of the umbrella and painted it red for me. Oh, fantastic. I would love to find that because it was actually better that way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I haven't got the full set, but I've got got the Tetrap, got an Ice Warrior, Cyberman, a red red and gold Dalek. Um, Yeah, the console, the Tom Baker... Obviously, it's um, it's Tom Baker without his scarf or anything like that. He's got a check pullover, um, Mel and Ace. I think uh, I think those I've got. So yeah, it's um, just got a like, uh, you know the Billy Book the half half with Billy Book case. They've got a shelf to themselves on there. So. Oh right, <laughs> must be around the, the console. I love them. Yeah, they must. I got them for Christmas about eleven or twelve or something, and just uh, I was absolutely delighted. Yeah, it was a total surprise. Uh, so uh, yeah, I uh, I love those. Yeah, um, uh, when at school, when uh, primary school, when uh, a kid got the TARDIS, and I was seething with jealousy, absolutely incandescent with jealousy because I so wanted it. So yeah. I had to make one out of Lego, which arguably was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing the thing I love about the 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 TARDIS playset box is it has the two most disinterested children in the world <laughs> looking down at it 
it's it, I, I'm just like that's the image you chose <laughs> and yeah it's 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 very 80s in that I remember toy um catalogs from the 80s always had children sort of behind the toy looking down on it but they were smiling <laughs> they were enjoying themselves these two are just like oh it's 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 a five-sided thing um <laughs> is this from Star Trek I don't like Star Trek how bad were the photos that were rejected, though? Were they stamping on them? Or was it on their nose? Or... <laughs> I demand a poly action figure, you know. Uh... <laughs> I'm poly, you be man. <laughs> oh, dear. No, but the, the thing is, like, for all, for all their inaccuracies, I kind of love them. Um mm-hmm. Um, because, because you know, people go, oh, they're so inaccurate, they're so terrible. It's like, you look at the Luke Skywalker action figure from the 80s, and he's got a chest like He-Man, for God's sake. Yeah, you know, yeah. a- action figures in, in the 80s were generally not photorealistic. <laughs> you know, we've, we've had amazing advances now, and I'm so grateful for the figures we have now. Um, but yeah, I love them for that reason. I also love them because JNT was trying to get action figures off the ground since Peter Davison, and that's why everyone had a bloody uniform so he could get an action figure deal. Yeah. And then he finally gets it. And does he get it from Kenner? No, he gets it from this little company who make model railways, but they're wanting to break into the action figure arena. And, you know, if if the BBC hadn't withdrawn the license when the new series came along, they would still be making them. <laughs> they were making them right up until 2004. I have a catalogue from 2004 for the Daypole toys. And they're like, at no point did they go, we're going to make this more accurate. At no point did they go, actually, yeah, you're right, let's make a six-sided TARDIS console. They went, no, this is our product. They're like, we're going to make one concession, and that is, okay, yeah, we got K9 wrong. Fine, we can do that. But not only that, you had uh, the Millennium Daleks, didn't you, which was spangly and very, very, very... Imagine, you know, if they were around today, they'd be making a set of Pride Daleks, you know. Totally. They would, because it was just so... They were so glittery, and it's like... I want the Daypole Daleks, like an actual Dalek, the actual Daleks in the series to be like those spangly, bright purple Daleks. Yeah. That glitter all over them. Why not? Because it would be great in defense, you know, like people stop and look and go, what the hell is that glittery thing coming towards me? And by the, <laughs> by the time you finish your sentence, you're dead. It'd work. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's that's the other thing I love, you know, with these vibrantly different coloured Daleks. Um, Daypole did special Daleks for charity. You know, Dalek. they did, like, um, a pink and purple uh, breast cancer Dalek, and they did special figures for conventions. And, you know, I think that's lovely. And, you know, character options occasionally do something like that, but it's generally the same figure you would get in the shop with a, with different packaging. And on mm. the one hand, and this kind of comes back to these Blu-ray sets, I understand there's a there's an argument against such exclusivity. But on the other hand, I don't have the pink breast cancer Dalek. I would love to have the pink breast cancer Dalek, but I just love knowing that it existed. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's and a very like Doctor Who thing that though, isn't it? All these yeah. obscure things that are only available for a day, you know, and you know, and like it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder, like a purple spangly Dalek, <laughs> um, you know, and and that's a very Doctor Who thing though. You know, yes. it's like you, you would never find that, especially nowadays with like a big budget Marvel thing because it'd be sanctioned and committee, 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 committee. Yes. No, it was like <laughs> there's this tiny place in Wales or wherever. <laughs> you go and you just you just take it, love, and you run with it. You go in any direction you want. Green <laughs> 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 canine, dab Ross with two hands, we don't mind. <laughs> There was nothing else around, was there? That was yeah. that was it. Doctor Who merchandise. It was um, yeah. Other than I suppose when the new adventures started, <clears throat> but I suppose like the late eighties, you know, the um, the annuals had stopped. Even it was uh, it was kind of the the only game in town, wasn't it? it was it was Dapol or Daypol? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, and it was when drawing the Sylvester McCoy era when you when you're watching the these the programs that are in the in the Blu-ray and around this time, like season 24 three to six um and to actually have those figures and to actually play at you know what you've seen on tv i mean it's what every kid wants isn't it basically mm. um but i suppose we always compare it to things at the time like uh, transformers or he-man where the toy comes first mm. yeah yeah, and, and they fashion the cartoons to sort of look like the toy. But with this, obviously, you know, is the program was around for decades and then trying to try, trying to make the toy look like uh, look like what everybody knows on the on the telly. Mm. Wrong way round, you see. The toy should have come first. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Write a stiff letter to the BBC. TV was <laughs> just a marketing tool for the uh, for the netball toys. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's um a, f- a fascinating documentary series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. Yeah. yeah. And, like, I've been watching it and thinking, oh, you know, I kind of wish they'd do a Doctor Who episode. But it's like, well, one, the show is American-centric, which is entirely understandable. But also, two, the Doctor Who toy market is kind of weird in that e- I think even with Dave – well, actually, I think the Dave Paul ones were very much geared towards kids. And I think the new series toys uh, in the RTD and Moffat era were geared towards kids. But I think all the classic series toys are not geared towards kids. No. They're geared towards yeah. us. Right. <laughs> and the, um, uh, the, the Vord that we're about to get. Oh, hopefully. my God. Yes. And <laughs> um, geared towards kids. Yeah. <laughs> I've said it before and I want to publicly say uh, publicly say it again. I want to thank Mark for being my B&M toy supplier <laughs> with me being in Australia where we the B&M sets, we get them occasionally a year later and they usually skip a few. <laughs> and for and for twice the price. So I'm very grateful to you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> very very welcome um but yeah i think what you're saying about sort of scarcity it does it does feel like things are like that with doctor at the moment the the vinyls that come out in the supermarkets uh you sell out very quickly and mm-hmm. if you're not near a sainsbury's or whatever then uh you know it's, it's very difficult to get one the, the b&m toys kind of go quite quickly as well i think mm. um now that they're re-releasing these collections because i, I think you're right in saying that only the uk were they limited edition I think in America and Australia. In in Australia, they're limited edition as well at the moment. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Um, and I I think 
um, part of the reason for that is after the first one came out, um, it changed distributor. Doctor Who changed distributor. It had been with Roadshow since the VHS era, and now it's with Universal. And I think um, Universal um, have reissued a few classic series stories on DVD. I think they're kind of testing the market. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, over here the collection, it's um, in a cardboard slipcase, so it's different packaging yet again. Uh, And generally they have been selling out in about a month. And at the moment, we ha- we haven't got any of the reissues yet. Um, so it's uh, unknown if we will get them. But, of course, we can order them from uh, Zavi, still send here. Um, mm. It's just a crapshoot as to whether you actually get your item. Uh, <laughs> oh, look, I haven't lost anything, but I know people who have. And then they they offer this tracking service, like Nathan ordered his with, with tracking. And uh, then it... Oh, it hasn't turned up yet. It hasn't turned up yet. Hey, what's the tracking number? Oh, we didn't send it with tracking. It's like, well, can you refund the postage? <laughs> they just didn't send it. Uh, but they, they did, and they gave them a credit, and then it arrived anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's that's fine. But, um, yeah, I think now that they're re-releasing them in the standard editions and it's kind of like the only difference is the packaging and a shorter booklet, I think that is a good way to go. Mm-hmm. And and that and that makes it that makes it fairer and true to their word they, those new editions don't seem to have sold out you know they're still no. available so that's great and it's kind of like mm, less shelf space uh, but here I am with half a wall wattled you know what I mean I've already got nine of them so <laughs> eh. um, but in the end I've decided no I like having the longer booklet by um, by dear Pete McTie so. That's what we're going to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm committed now, really. Yeah, like you say, the, I want them all to match. Um, yeah. But just the you know, the thought that some fans couldn't get hold of them, um, you know, and, and also the, like you're saying about the amount of work that's gone into these and the, the love that's gone into them, um, limiting the number of people that can then experience that just, just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted now that um, it, it means that anybody that wants to get, you know, people who get into Doctor Who this year, when series uh, 13 comes out, mm. if they then couldn't, you know, because the DVDs presumably, are, you know, are now discontinued, although there'd be a second-hand market for them, um, the, you know, the idea that they couldn't get the collections and enjoy these seasons with the level of, of extras and, and background detail, it's um, yeah, it's, mm. it's pretty sad thought. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, that they're now permanently available. Mm. Yeah, but you know, like you produce a small run, and if it sells out hundred percent, I suppose it gives it's a good business model to whatever bank that you get funded by, yeah. or whoever yeah. is funding you. You know, it's like, look, we sold hundred percent. It's un- it's unbelievable. So, <laughs> in this um, day and age, yeah, I d- I do know someone who uh, is is ra- mm-hmm. is rather cross about about the Blu-rays, and he's like, I'm not. I'm not buying it all again, but but his his whole thing is look you know look at the first two sets they had errors on them. He's like I am going to wait until there is the massive 174 disc complete classic series set and then I'm <laughs> going to buy that. And initially I kind of said to him, "Oh come on!" But then Dark Shadows has like a 200 disc set or something ridiculous like that. You know, there's a complete Dark Shadows set. Um. Now, I reckon that complete Doctor Who set will probably be limited to like 
2000 copies because because they'll just go not many people are going to want to buy this <laughs> or yeah. they'll or they will do it by doctor or by decade you know what i mean like the complete mm-hmm. 60s okay. they'll mm-hmm. they'll do it in some way with like all the flaws fixed and like one one big book that just has all the booklets jammed together <laughs> at the end <laughs> It seems you have to be quite big, won't it? <laughs> be, um, they'll yeah, have, they'll have really big box sets per decade, and then a really slim nineties one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is my fervent hope that um, Dimensions in Time is finally oh, cleared for release. <laughs> It'll be an extra on the TV movie, just you watch. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope so. With, mm, with both endings on it as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good old big Ron. <laughs> and a- Andrew Orton's um, production subtitles. Oh, yes. Oh, God, if you haven't experienced those. <laughs> <laughs> this scene was filmed on a Tuesday. Or was it a Thursday? I've got it written down somewhere. I'll check my notes. <laughs> oh, there's Bonnie Langford. Oh, it was Wednesday. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and I, I God, I, I, and it was so shady. I think I think one of the subtitles was just after after a particular line. It was just Kate O'Mara is an actress. <laughs> <laughs> Bless her. Oh, I love that. Oh dear! I just love seeing the menu screen, the the um, oh. the, the console rooms, and it just flies around. And yeah, I'm, I'm not so... averse to watching that for a while. They're so and beautiful. Yeah. They're Having so that background hum when they did the season twenty six one, and like and and they did it with without the pillars and the and it's oh uh, yeah, but yeah, calming, isn't it? It's quite um, there's something quite relaxing. About the the background hum and just just seeing the detail that they've put into it, it's lovely. I am I'm copying those to my hard drive as uh, as they go along, and just when everything is released, because they've always got, they've got that flash at the end mm. when it resets. I'm gonna go season one, season two, season. I'm gonna lay them all up together. Oh man, nice. And yeah, and it'll be lovely. I'm looking forward oh, to doing that. Lovely. Although uh, for season seven, I do kind of hope we get. I. That's the thing. I'm hoping for the ambassadors of death bachelor pad with the flock wallpaper, but I think we're going to get the inferno shed. Yeah, because <laughs> Bessie's there, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be quite nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the season 24 Blu-ray collection, still available at the time of recording. It's not sold out as quickly as some of the others. Um, but as we're saying, there will be a standard edition in the future anyway. So definitely one to recommend. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure discussing that one with you. Would you just like to let our listeners know where else we can find you on the internet? Uh, on Twitter, at UncleBeard1978. Definitely recommend following if you don't already for the Time War Simon artwork on there, which I absolutely love. <laughs> Not to mention Who Beards. I love Who Beards. Oh, Who Beards. <laughs> Check out Who Beards. <laughs> um, uh, right. And uh, you can find me at Brandy Bongos on Twitter, also Brandy Bongos on YouTube. And um, 
other podcasts I'm on, including Flight Through Entirety, Bond Finger, and Jody Into Terror. And you can just search for those terms in your podcatcher of choice. Thank you very much. I'm at Quark McMallis on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore and find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.